you know, we don't have to agree um, on everything, but it's important that we hear each other out and try to come from a place of kind of understanding. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, friends. I'm Kim Skorupski, and you've joined in for the Triple H series, The Habits and Hacks from Hopkins. And I'm so pleased to introduce you to our guest today, Dr. Risha Irvin. Dr. Irvin, how are you today? I'm doing good, Kim, and thanks so much for having me. So happy to see your face. Um, people know who've been listening to podcasts for years now. I moved away from the Skype version to the Zoom version, and it makes me so happy as an extrovert to see the faces. And I'm sorry, folks in podcast world, you can't see Risha's lovely face, but she's got our beautiful Hopkins Hospital behind her and huge smile. And that just makes me so happy as I still sit here in my basement. So thank you for joining us, Risha. Why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you do here at Hopkins? Sure. So I'm an assistant professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases. My research really focuses on um, vulnerable populations and in relation to HIV and hepatitis C health disparities. And so the vulnerable populations I really focus on are underserved communities, individuals with issues with substance use, um, and incarcerated persons. So my kind of big research project right now is looking at hepatitis C testing and treatment in incarcerated persons and the impact that has on overall hepatitis C elimination um, as we work towards um, eliminating um, hepatitis C. The other things I do at Hopkins are kind of focused on my community work um, and really engaging with community members on HIV and hepatitis C testing. As a part of that, um, I work with our Baltimore HIV Collaboratory for the Center for AIDS Research Um, and direct programs there um, focused on kind of engaging with the community. And we also run several pipeline programs to get um, individuals underrepresented in medicine, interested in infectious diseases, and in particular HIV. And then finally, the other kind of hat I wear um, at Hopkins is I serve as Associate Vice Chair for Diversity and Inclusion for our Department of Medicine where I'm focused on recruiting, kind of retention and promotion of individuals underrepresented in medicine. So that's kind of (laughs) a little bit about what I do here. Exhale, Risha. Yes, everybody can uh, really appreciate. It seems like every time I interview someone here at Hopkins, there's just so much, so much, so much. Everyone is doing so much and wears so many hats and has such passion for what you're doing. So I can't wait to dig in and have you tell everybody like what habits or hacks or practices or mantras or tools have you employed that have you know brought you to this place, that see you through, that make you successful, that guide you? What are you going to share today? Sure. So I think, you know, both my kind of research and community work have taught me just the importance of engaging uh, the community around us and letting them guide the work you do um, and understanding that they're the experts on their community. And so I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned. I think sometimes as researchers, we think we have all of this great training and we know how to solve problems, but really the community knows what issues are important to them 
And they have a lot of great ideas about how to solve those issues and how we can partner um, to forge academic community partnerships to, to really work on kind of those issues. And so in both my research and community outreach efforts, I've really tried to engage the community and primarily community-based organizations to partner with me um, and let them guide me um, to the places that I need to go in terms of my research and help me also think about what questions we need to ask and what are the interventions that will kind of solve the issues that have been identified. Um, wow. So so here, so help, help us think about how to actually apply this. So pretend you're giving me advice and I say, Dr. Irvin, I want to engage in my community and I'm, and I, Kim Skorupski, have noticed um, in, so I'm a gerontologist, so I love aging research. So I have noticed um, in my neighborhood that there seems to be um, some um, older adults who aren't really kind of, who are seem kind of lonely and because of COVID, they're like maybe trapped in their in their rooms in the nearby nursing home or in their apartments. And I, and, and I think that they're lonely. So I, Risha, um, I put together a survey and I'm going to go into the local um, area agency on aging and have a meeting with someone there. And then I'm going to say that I have this survey that's going to help, you know, fix these problems there. Would you say that sounds like a great idea, Kim, and that's the perfect way to engage with the community? Or what kind of advice would you give someone about how does one really engage and what are these levels of engagement? Sure. Um, So, you know, with that scenario, one thing I would say, what I've always tried to do is figure out who are the leaders in the community and kind of what organizations really know the community. And I try to meet with those organizations or those individuals first to talk about, you know, what I'm kind of interested in and what I kind of think might be an issue, but then to get feedback from them about kind of the the vantage point they see it from or kind of any issues or other thoughts that they have. And then actually often get them to help me sometimes have kind of focus groups or other kind of groups that can help me actually develop what my assessment tool um, will be. Um, So you mentioned kind of a survey, but getting input from people about kind of even what those questions um, should be. Because again, we go with the questions that we think are important, but sometimes the individuals in the community have a totally different perception. So it's really great to get their input early on. I'll say the other lesson that I've learned is that as researchers in particular, we have to stop kind of doing these kind of one-offs where we hop into the community, want to get some information, and don't really provide anything to the community. So first, I think we really have to think about kind of long-standing relationships. So, you know, my work is in HIV and hepatitis C, and so there are definitely partners around Baltimore City who I know are kind of experts in that area in terms of community-based organizations. And so I try to have long-standing relationships with them that work kind of both ways. So there's sometimes that I bring things to them um, that I want input on, but they also know that I'm here to help them, particularly community-based organizations are sometimes looking for input on how to write a grant. And so, you know, that's something I can help them with. And so that it's a two-way relationship and kind of long-standing and that we can call on each other. So it's not just these kind of one-offs. The other thing that we really tried to do, myself and Dr. Kathleen Page, we work together um, through the Center for AIDS Research, 
and making sure that we get results back to people from the research that we do. Because the other thing is we go into communities, we ask all of these questions or, you know, we test the intervention, but we have to go back and tell people kind of what we found as well. So thinking about ways that we can disseminate that information effectively to communities is really important as well. Gosh, you've said so much, Risha. I really appreciate this insight. And I think it's so important. And a couple of things that you said that really jumped out at me is this idea of staying away from the one-offs is so fundamental. And I think a lot of us maybe miss this because, I mean, our lives, we are wrapped up in the life of the mind and our ivory tower. So we have these testable hypotheses and we know how to collect the data and the various multi-trait, multi-method ways of triangulating mm-hmm. data. So we kind of are convicted that we know what to do and how to do it. But I love how you said, we can put a great standardized tools and indices and all these scales and, and that would be measuring something, but it's not the thing that most matters to the community. So I love how you've raised you know, these, these issues. And in the example I gave, you know, my perception that they're lonely could be completely off base. So I could be putting the some blah, 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 loneliness scale in and, and it would measure something, but it's not maybe loneliness, maybe it's anxiety or, yeah. it's, you know, no accessibility that they, they're not lonely. Maybe they have uh, put together some internal uh, social networking in groups, but I, through my lens, am placing some perceived judging on there. And so I love how you said you meet with as many people as possible. You look for input, you listen via maybe focus groups. I think that is so important. And then I love the example you said, talk about, about the quid pro quo, like they, what can I provide to them? This is not transactional, it's transformational. So when you're trying to build relationships, yeah, it's both ways. And so many times do we hear people say, oh yeah, you're just the flavor of the month or the year. Mm-hmm. You're just some new, excited, enthusiastic professor. Good for you. You're going to do a survey. You're going to do a whatever. It's going to be a lot of activity, a lot of commotion. And then we're never going to hear from you again. Exactly. And that's and nothing can really destroy or deteriorate that trust. I mean, that's part mm-hmm. of this thing is right trust, right? So Exactly. I imagine you through engaging purposely and having a continued presence, that's how you build the trust, right? How does, how have you seen examples of where trust has been eroded from maybe a predecessor and how you've had to build that up again? Sure. So that definitely happens. And I think, you know, right. If we look around our East Baltimore community, many people have been involved in different research studies um, through, you know, our major academic institutions and, you know, Everyone hasn't had a great experience with those um, research studies before. And some of that's just because, you know, people feel like information was never communicated back. The other issue I think I found sometimes with our community-based organizations, they'll say, well, you did this research, you showed that this intervention worked, but then, you know, there's no follow-up to that. And so one of the things that we've talked about our to our community members um, about is, you know, The interventions that we test are often funded by, you know, scientific research in terms of the NIH. And, you know, there's not money for necessarily implementation of that. Um, And so we've talked one about kind of what the model is to fund research. But I think once we find that something works, one, we've got to disseminate that to the community. 
But then also, again, partner with our community-based organizations to sometime help them get implementation dollars from, from foundations, from the city health department, um, the state health department, and others, because I think it's also important that our research actually does something. So we, we don't want to just prove interventions work and it really goes nowhere from there. We want to actually um, see that implemented. And so I think, you know, the area of implementation science is important, but also helping our community-based organizations implement the interventions that we found to be effective. And so, again, I think that takes a lot of partnership. Um, with them um, to help them get some of those implementation dollars that sometimes come from foundations or health departments and is different from our, you know, scientific kind of research funding as well. Yeah, and that is such a challenge, you know, the final stage of that implementation of the recommendations and then sustainability. And and you're you're reminding me of some of my my work back in the day where I think there was, and part of this relationship building was where when I work with CBOs in Erie, Pennsylvania, it was around teenage pregnancy prevention. It was for an applied research center when I worked at Barron College, part of Penn State campus. And there was this, and it goes both ways again with relationships in the community. I had this distinct feeling that a lot of the nonprofit leaders that I was working with assumed that we're Penn State. So we have like I had this like maybe limitless credit card or I had like millions of dollars that I could write a check on. Exactly. And, and they think I was probably making, I don't know, a half a million dollars a year. And like little <laughs> did they know that I was making, you know, forty thousand dollars a year and I'm scraping by and I don't have access to money. I don't even exactly. have an expense account and I'm traveling to you on my own dime. And, and even here at Hopkins, you know, I'm sure, you know, Risha, people think that, oh, you, oh, you work at Hopkins, you faculty have so much money. I'm thinking, no, 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 Hopkins. <laughs> and you don't know this. And most people don't know this, but our salaries are according to AMC salary tables. We're like the 20th percentile nationally. Please do not say our faculty members make a lot of money because they don't. So there's a kind of that while we can be humble enough and recognize that we are not the keepers of all truth in the community, there is a kind of reciprocity of helping them to understand that I am, I, Dr. Urban, am not then deciding who of you is going to get money because I'm not sitting on a pot of money. Exactly. So that, that kind of education is they think that we just have access to, or we get these grants like crazy. And then then maybe sometimes they would then point a finger. Well, you did all this work, and then she left us high and dry. And then, exactly. and then Dr. Urban became the dean of something, something, and she just took off and left us. That she didn't, you know, give us the half a million dollars to actually implement this. So how did, you know, how do you see exactly. that play out? And how do you, how do you build that again? The relationship and the trust and the education and the understanding. Yeah. So that's one of the things when I've worked with community groups that I've tried to. Um, explain and also be very transparent about what I can do and what resources I do bring to the table and what I can't do and don't have control over. Um, and in particular, if it's a research project I'm talking to them about, I really talk about, you know, what my funding is for and what it can fund. Um, and then what I can't do in terms of that kind of research funding, because I do think it's very important that we let people know from the beginning 
um, what we're there for and what resources that we have. Because I think people do feel like when you come from one of these big academic institutions that you do have access to lots of funds and kind of money to spend and to implement. And we don't, you know, it, you know, our money is typically coming off of research grants and a very defined focus in terms of what those funds can be used for. So really important to let kind of communities know that. Um, and, you know, it came into play it really as we transitioned to the COVID-19 as well. And I run, one of the things I do is run a community group of faith and community leaders um, to keep them updated on COVID-19 health disparities and vaccines um, and some of the vaccine science. And, you know, in our initial discussions, you know, a lot of uh, talk came up about, you know, kind of the funding and who's funding the vaccines. And so one of the discussions we had, and I think being very transparent about, you know, what we could do at Hopkins and what we were doing, um, and that, you know, in terms of kind of the national level that we weren't controlling those things. Um, but again, very important to be upfront and honest and transparent um, about what role we can play. Um, one of the things that I do think as we transitioned into COVID-19 with our faith and community leaders, many of us that worked in this space um, throughout the pandemic and kind of ongoing now, we had existing relationships um, with many of these organizations. Again, my work based around HIV and hepatitis C, but many of my other colleagues in kind of different fields. Um, and so that there was this level of trust as well that kind of was already embedded in the situation, which really helped. But, you know, we've also had very frank um, discussions um, as well, but I think there was a mutual understanding um, and trust on both sides because we had an ongoing relationship with each other. And so again, I just think that's really important. Yeah. So this this is this is beautiful. And this is painting a picture for me that back to, you know, you said at least twice now this transparency is that I'm I'm kind of likening the situation to when you have these embedded relationships. And then when we as an investigator, clinician scientist, you know, community scientists, as Panagis Galliot-Satos was talking on a recent episode about, uh, you know, physicians, physician, uh, what, what does he call it? He had this great term and I actually wrote it down. I love it. But this idea that um, physician citizen, uh, says we are physician citizens, is that when there is this presence that is not the one-off, when we invite our colleagues, our Hopkins colleagues, or fill in the blank at your institution, when we talk about our work, inspire and encourage and, and, and really like um, elevate this work and the possibilities with other colleagues, there's more, it's not just me, but it's not just Risha Urban doing this. You're part of the team, mm -hmm. you're part of the family. So that relationships, those series of embedded networks have become so institutionalized in the community that even when Dr. Irvin flies the nest and, you know, moves on as life's journey and season takes her somewhere else, just like in a family, mm -hmm. you know, our, our dear sweet Risha moved away. Does it mean she's not part of the family? She is, she's flown the coop, she's spreading her wings and there's still, the nest is there. So mm -hmm. you're, you're not, when it's a one-off and it's you alone and you're the lone wolf, then you leave and there is that vacuum. But I think when we invite community, literally community, but our Hopkins or our university community to gather together, there's that power and that 
sustenance and sustainability so that when one person does move on, it's not a, a slap in the face to the community that I can't believe Dr. Urban did all this work. And then she up and left us. Exactly. I've had that experience of moving around and I've, and I've all, and I felt you know, terrible that I was felt like I was leaving a community of a vacuum. So the way you've described this is that the, this legacy is not just, a, it's not a, a dry, you know, a once in a while thing. It's, it's an, a permanent structure and we can help that permanence by inviting more people. Exactly. It's really important to have, I think, multiple people at the table. So not just one person is seen as the person of the institution kind of that does this work, but having a whole team. And I'll say, again, with kind of COVID-19, we had a um, health equity um, group under um, Dr. Sharita Golden, and she brought many of us together from different fields to be a part of this work. And so I think we were all able to bring our kind of different connections but again, very important. So not just kind of one person is seen as kind of the link to this work, um, but so many of us kind of came together to take on an issue and collaborated with the community as well to kind of think about COVID-19 health equity. And, and, don't, and, and isn't what you're doing just these, these one-on-one connections and this building, you know, building relationship and this authentic, genuine, transparent engagement, that is then, it's not just Oh, Hopkins. Oh, we don't trust Hopkins. Now it's a Sharita Golden. It's a Risha Irvin. So yeah, they're Hopkins, but now I know her personally. So the the trust is at the person level. And maybe it's not, well, I don't trust the government. Well, let's talk, who are we talking about the government? You trust this Mm -hmm. guy or that woman? Well, she's all right, but it's the, the fill in the blank or that group of people or those kind of people. When you get to take the time or when we take the time to know the person at any micro level, you know, the community, the neighborhood, the mm-hmm. block, the house, the family, the person. Wow, that just that just tears away all those labels that that we so easily kind of check off the box and say, mm, don't trust Hopkins, Mm-mm, those scientists, exactly. you know. Tell us something else about your diversity role as the associate vice chair and how that evolved and how you're navigating that role, especially during this crazy time and how you're juggling that with your really cool work with, you know, hep C and HIV. Oh, sure. So I had been a part of the diversity council for the Department of Medicine for the past few years um, and assumed um, the position as associate vice chair for diversity and inclusion and then chair of the Diversity Council um, back in March of this year. So still fairly new um, to the role, but really excited to take on um, this work. And again, you know, focused on recruiting um, and then retention and promotion of individuals underrepresented in medicine, um, which I think, you know, as we think about the Department of Medicine, that's kind of a a, a lot um, to take on, but we have a lot of great um, faculty um, and trainees in our department that are really interested um, in these ideals and, you know, have a vested interest in equity and inclusion and diversity. Um, and so we have a whole team kind of working on these issues. So really, it's a really exciting time. I think, you know, for us, a part of that is making sure that we expand the pipeline of students 
um, underrepresented students who are coming to our medical school, um, coming to our training programs, because really that's where you kind of get most of your faculty from. Um, and so I think one of the things we're doing is taking a broader look at kind of the pipeline and how we start kind of early on recruiting people um, into internal medicine and thinking about, you know, um, several of our kind of divisions and what people can subspecialize in. Um, it's a really focused kind of on that. I think one of the other overarching issues is just how we build a sense of community. And, and so thinking about ways to do that, in particular, thinking about how you do that during COVID, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, people are pretty zoomed out, you know, I'll say. And so trying to, you know, cultivate kind of relationships for people. And so thinking about kind of smaller events and how we do that so that people feel like they have a connection to each other, particularly our new faculty um, that have started over kind of these last two years, kind of during the COVID-19 pandemic, because I think it's really easy to feel disconnected. And so how do we bring kind of people in um, to the fold? I think other issues, um, just making sure that, you know, we retain our URM um, faculty and trainees and then making sure people get promoted as well. I think even, you know, my own experience um, doing a lot of kind of community work and how that translates into academic scholarship um, at an academic institution. And so making sure that we're helping people kind of navigate any of those issues that kind of might come up um, in their careers as well, so that we make sure that we're valuing all types of kind of scholarship um, in our kind of promotion pathways as well. And so that's another um, area that we advocate um, for in you know, this is a personal question, but what kinds of things can we do to retain faculty, period? I have so many things that I've been harping on, you know, since I've been here. And to me, as a faculty, in my faculty development hat is, is resources. I always feel like we are under-resourced. And when I talk to faculty, my heart just busts when I, just before talking to you, talking to faculty members who are knocking out of the park, you know, four grant awards, and they're still doing four inpatient rounds per week. And don't worry, next year, we'll kind of back you off of that. And we'll, we'll get you down to three next year. And in the meantime, I just got a K-23 that's paying for 70% of my salary. And I got two foundation awards, and I got this, and I got three R01s in the pipeline. And how can you be doing this? And and this person, like, they don't have any admin support and there's, you know, they're, you know, boarding, they're rooming and boarding and their own patients and they're calling the pharmacy. And I just, you know, I, I immediately want to like jump through the Zoom screen and say, well, I'll do it. You know, I'll, I'll transport your patients for you. You care <laughs> about that. But so my big thing is always resources, resources, resources. And I realize that I am extraordinarily ignorant about the literature and what other things we can do. But you, you know, Risha, I'm all about building, you know, small communities of engagement, like through my WAGs, the writing accountability group. And this podcast is all about building community. But I still so oftentimes feel helpless. Like I I we we I can only do so much, but as an institution, as a department, as a division, as peers, what can what can you give us a couple things that we can all think about, even if we're not doing them here at Hopkins? Like, what might we start thinking about practically doing other than having Bloomberg give us a billion dollars <laughs> to make sure people don't leave? 
Yeah, I know. I mean, it, it's definitely hard. You know, academic medicine, I think, for particularly people who are being clinicians and trying to maintain kind of research, it's a, it's a hard um, balance, I think. There are a couple things that I think that are helpful, and, and I think there are things that others have identified. So one, I'll say, you know, mentorship is huge. Um, it's been huge for me, and I know s- several, you know, other my other colleagues, and it, it's such a big issue. And so I'll say, you know, in me coming to Hopkins, I actually was in kind of HIV policy and decided to transition into an academic career. And I'll say for me, staying in academics was probably largely in part due to my division director, Dave Thomas, um, who is my direct um, mentor as well. And, you know, I think really took me under his wing um, and one made time to meet with me, you know, on a regular basis, which is really important. You know, so many people who are very senior here are really busy. Um, But I think, you know, if you're going to have a mentor Um, and work with someone, it's important to make time for that person to understand what their strengths and weaknesses are um, and help them kind of grow. And so I think, you know, Dr. Thomas has really helped me um, do that. I think the other thing that was really important in my kind of mentorship with Dr. Thomas is that he asked me a lot about what I wanted to do or where I wanted my career to go at Hopkins. And one of the things he said to me, you know, I may not be an expert in everything um, that you want to do, you know, his expertise is in infectious diseases and hepatitis C um, and has really helped me advance my kind of research. Um, But he said, you know, if there are things you want to do at Hopkins that, you know, I'm not the expert in, then I will make sure you get to the people that you need to, to meet with and get to know. And so he also was really helpful in making introductions um, to many different people across Hopkins and getting me access to, you know, senior level people that could help me in kind of different areas of my career, including, you know, the work I wanted to do in diversity um, and inclusion as well. And so I think that's really important. Um, The other thing that's, you know, not just mentorship, but sponsorship. Um, And so making sure that individuals in your division or department are getting recognized for the work that they're doing. I think when you're junior and you're doing, you know, your clinical work and you're doing kind of research, sometimes it gets hard and you feel like, you know, you're not being kind of recognized for anything. And so trying to make sure that you don't have to be a person's mentor, but that you can help in terms of sponsorship. And that means, you know, saying that, you know, they should give this talk. If someone reaches out to you as a senior person and say, you know, I know somebody else who would be great to give this talk and, you know, getting, you know, a junior person to be able to give that at a national conference or, you know, something like that, or nominating a junior person for an award so that they're recognized, um, particularly at big institutions like this, it feels like sometimes there's so many people doing so many great things. And so, how do you get recognized for the things that you're doing? So I think sponsorship is a big piece of that. I do think the other kind of role that, you know, department chairs and division directors can play is just continuously advocating for resources, though. And so I think that's in terms of kind of space resources. So making sure that faculty have, you know, the offices that they need or kind of have space for their research assistants to have somewhere to sit. Um, but then also financial resources, you know, in terms of kind of salary um, support and what that looks like. Um, because again, we are competing with other institutions um, to retain our faculty. And so in order to do that, we do have to be competitive. And, you know, finances are a part of that. You know, people have trained for a long time and, you know, 
people don't go into medicine um, to make, you know, bukus of money. But, you know, a lot of people have loans, um, you know, both myself and my husband, we took on loans to go to medical school. And so, you know, the financial piece is a part of it when you think about people kind of raising their families and wanting to provide opportunities for themselves as well. So I think we do have to continuously advocate for those resources as well. Very well said. Very well said. Mentorship, sponsorship, leaders advocating for resources like space, time, money, so, so important. And and what is one of the important things about what you said is when you started talking about mentorship is that, you know, they're so busy, so busy. And, you know, the, the, the leaders, the senior leaders, yes, yes, yes. And, you know, part of me gets kind of like annoyed with mentors, like, yeah, you're busy, but that's part of the, that's what you signed on for. Yeah. You're a faculty member. You got to make the time. So these kind of like uh, flyby mentorship arrangements, I get so annoyed when I hear of like, do you have a mentor? Yeah, I do. When was the last time? you? Well, we meet quarterly kind of, what do you talk about? Well, we talk about RVUs or we, you know, he talks about his, this, that, or the other, and, or she, she mentions, you know, what she wants me to do. That's not real mentorship. So, I mean, to us, you know, here at Hopkins, you know, Risha, we have all these mentoring programs and Dr. Jennifer Haythorn Thwaite is our like mentor Sherpa. She does all (laughs) these mentoring programs and workshops for uh, about the the T32, the training programs. And we we spend a lot of time trying to help skill up or train Mm -hmm. up mentors and mentees that mentees Mm -hmm. are proactive and and don't feel shy about, well, she's so busy, I don't want to bother her. No, you get on their calendar, you own the agenda, you mm-hmm. need it because of course they're busy. Hello, everybody's busy. Exactly. This is the cult of busy. We all are. <laughs> uh, I have never met a person yet in academia who's like, no, I'm I got nothing going on. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to meet? Whatever. I, I'm doing nothing, nothing. Nobody says that. So, and then and then the other, you know side as for the mentors, no, I, I don't buy it that while well, I, I mentored out and I'm I'm just gonna kind of superficially be that. No, when you're in something in do it, do it right because this exactly. is somebody's and if you can't, you know, then be honest about that. Back to your transparency thing, but be transparent about I can give you this level of mentorship. I can meet with you this often. And this is what I expect from you. This is what I need from you, Risha. I'm like in the middle of a big you award. And I would like to do this, but for the next period of X number of months, I'm going to need very focused emails from you, but it's going to be really. So just that, again, communication of setting clear boundaries, clear expectations to maximize the time. Let's not waste time. So I'm so happy that you brought that up. and. You know, let's let's talk about real mentorship, real sponsorship. And by the way, sponsorship can come from our peers, right? We can always use op, um, opportunities to say, "Hey, Kim, I didn't realize that you do this kind of work. Next time you do this and such, you know, I'd be curious. I'd be interested in doing it. Would you mind?" And I'd be like, "Absolutely." I keep lists of faculty who are interested in certain things, and you know, asking our friends to nominate us for an award or <laughs> to give a talk or something. So. That's my kind of my my bugaboo, my little personal, I guess, kind of thing that gets me all crunchy is when I when I have faculty members who talk to me and they'll spout off like five mentors, but to me, there's no real depth or gravitas to those relationships. So mm-hmm. I, I love that you're emphasizing 
um, the mentor in the various connecting, meeting, furthering, thinking about your career and, and like how Dr. Thomas said, hey, I might not be the content expert, but I can certainly connect you to somebody who is. So mm -hmm. good points. Good stuff. Anything else you'd like to share with us? I get so excited and um, I love the things you're saying. There's so much um, value here. Would you like to share any other habits or hacks or way of thinking or being or messages to the folks who are listening? Um, no, I mean, I, I think that's about it. I guess the only thing I would say is just that, you know, as we all work to create a more kind of inclusive and equitable environment to always just try to see other people's vantage point. Mm. Um, you know, we don't have to agree um, on everything, but it's important that we hear each other out and try to come from a place of kind of understanding um, because we all, you know, carry our life experiences, which sometimes, um, you know, provide certain biases that we all carry. Um, and so, you know, always being open to explore your beliefs and other people's beliefs and doing it in a respectful um, way. And so I think if we all um, do that, we'll all be better for it. Oh my gosh. Very, very well said. Dr. Irvin, it's been a delight. I want to thank you so much for being on the Faculty Factory podcast. How can folks get in touch with you if they want to learn more about how does a new Associate Vice Chair for Diversity Inclusion <laughs> get that role and about your HIV hep C work in uh, incarcerated populations or anything like that? How might that get in touch with you? What's your email? Sure. Yeah. So people are welcome to always email me. I'm pretty good on kind of email. My Hopkins emails are irbin1 at jhmi.edu. I'm happy to always take any kind of emails and answer questions about um, the work I do um, or anything else. Well, this has been great. Again, Dr. Risha Urban's email address is R-I-R-V, as in Victor, I-N-1, rurban1 at jimmy.edu. That's jimmy.edu. <laughs> Risha, it's been wonderful. Keep smiling. I love your energy. Stick with us. Don't go anywhere. We need you here. Not that you're going anywhere, anybody. I'm just saying. I love talking to people, and I always got want them to stay and stick. And um, so, thank you for the work you do. And next time, folks, tell everybody about the Faculty Factory podcast, and we'll talk to you later. Thank you, Risha. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.